Friends, let us pray. God of forever, God of right now, by your spirit open our ears to hear your word to us this day in scripture, in prayer, and in song. Open our eyes to see your word to us in children's faces, in troubling statistics, in our action together. Open our hearts to feel your word to us in the warmth of love, in the ache of sadness, and in the energy of commitment. We pray in the name of Jesus, the great teacher. Amen. Today's gospel reading is from the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. Hear these words of the gospel. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child whom he put among them and said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depth of the sea. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A couple of years ago, third church tutor Bob Crumrine was tutoring two fourth graders in math at the same time. Now, I want to thank Bob for giving me permission to share his name and the story that I'm about to tell you. And I also want to thank several other tutors who have also given me permission to share their names and their stories today. Now, these two fourth graders that Bob tutored were a boy who was doing pretty well in math and a girl who was really struggling with it. Bob gave them a multiplication problem, something like 38 times 24. Now, Bob said he and his two students all worked out the problem longhand, and they got three different answers. Well, Bob whipped out his calculator to find the answer, and one of the three answers was indeed correct. But it was not Bob's. (laughs) He did give me permission to say this, just so you know. Now, the girl, the one who had been struggling, was the one who had the right answer. And she graciously helped the guys figure out where they had gone wrong. So Bob went home and practiced his multiplication. (laughs) It was humbling, he said. 2,000 years earlier, the disciples came to Jesus preening and posturing for position and privilege, trying to find out where they ranked in the hierarchy of God's realm. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
Now, I don't know what kind of answer they were expecting, but if we know anything about Jesus, the answer they got was probably not the one they wanted. Jesus called a child, put that child in their midst, and said, here's your answer. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you Google images under the heading, Jesus and children, with only a few exceptions, the scenes are idyllic. The children are pretty. Their cheeks are plump. Their skin is scrubbed squeaky clean. Many are even blonde and fair-skinned. Their faces bespeak wonderment. They appear oh so full of promise, as all children should. But, but that's probably not how it was. You see, according to social scientists, childhood in antiquity was a time of terror. Infant mortality rates sometimes reached 30%. Another 30% of live births were dead by age six. And 60% were gone by age 16. More than 70% would have lost one or both parents before reaching puberty. The children that Jesus drew to himself were probably street kids who either had no parents or were turned loose to fend for themselves because their parents didn't have enough means to provide for them. These children were probably sickly, weak, starving, and even dying, and often seen as only half-human, without status, vulnerable with a capital V, humble with a capital H, and waiting, just waiting for someone to trust, for someone to listen, and for someone to love. You see, as theologian N.T. Wright has written, Jesus not only wants his disciples to see that becoming like children was central to their growing in grace and wisdom, he is also concerned for children themselves. And Jesus' words are strong words. If any of you put a stumbling block before them, it would be better for you if a millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, I hope Jesus' words are hyperbole, but they're serious. Today is the Children's Sabbath, known locally as Children's Interfaith Weekend. And every year on the third weekend of October, faith communities around the country focus on children and justice and the moral and spiritual and ethical imperative to nurture and protect and seek justice for them. It's a call that comes out of our sacred texts, including today's story from Matthew. It's a call that Children's Defense Fund founder Marion Wright Edelman asks us to answer so that children not only survive, but thrive and realize their God-given potential. It is a moral disgrace and economic threat, she says, that nearly one in five children is poor in the wealthiest nation on earth. 
One weekend of child advocacy is not enough. People of faith must commit to working throughout the year to realize an America where every child has enough, enough time, attention, and stability from parents and other caring adults, and enough quality education. According to ACT Rochester, the research arm of the Community Foundation, only 18% of students attending school in the Rochester School District passed the New York State Grade 3 English exam. It matters because, as we know, early reading skills are critical to a successful school experience and a productive work life. In grade three math, 22% passed. Grade, grade, eight, grade eight English, it's 10%. In grade eight math, 14%. To look at it another way, the child that Jesus put in the midst of his disciples is one of the 82% of third graders and 90% of eighth graders who didn't pass their English exam. The child Jesus put in their midst is one of the 78% of third graders and 86% of eighth graders who didn't pass their math exam. My personal motivation around education has to do with my dad. You may not know that my dad only has an eighth grade education. Because his parents lost their farm during the Great Depression, my dad and his brother were actually discouraged from going to high school. And even as his three sisters got to go, dad and his brother were pressured to stay back to work and to help grandpa get the farm back. He has said time and again to me and my siblings that that is his greatest regret in life. And to this day, he still gets tears in his eyes when he talks about it. It motivated him to help all of us get a good education. And it's why, in spite of his own abbreviated formal education, he served on the local town school board. It's why in his retirement, he still drives a school bus route. It's part of my story. There is an initiative in our denomination called Educate a Child, Transform the World, and I am proud to be part of it. It was approved by the General Assembly in 2014, but its roots go back to the beginning of the Reformed tradition, which has always emphasized the value of education and its potential to transform lives and systems. Beginning with John Calvin in the 1500s and continuing through today, Presbyterians have long considered public education essential to the literacy and well-being of the whole community and giving us the best chance to empower the most students. Supporting public education is in Presbyterians' DNA. 
And third church has long been part of that emphasis. Many of you are educators or work in schools and institutions of learning. We acknowledge and thank you this morning. About 100 third churchers and people from our community tutor at schools in three, at schools three and 35 and others here in the city. And I want to acknowledge you and your leaders, Melanie Jones and Jennifer Shafrath and all those who filled those roles before them, people like Deb Bishop and Sue Maddock. Thank you. This is real one-on-one -on -one ministry that reflects our theology of incarnation, that God became one of us. And I want to acknowledge the people and the work of Great Schools for All to address systemic equity issues in education. Thank you. And our Kenya team has just returned from visiting our partner, Kahumo Parish, including the 60 or so delightful children in the primary school that is run by that parish, part of the capital campaign some years ago that funded the renovation of this sanctuary, also included funds to help support the expansion of the Kahumo School. And if you are part of that, thank you for our commitment to education spans the globe. And at the same time, I admit that in a week where it seems the world is going off the rails, it feels a little odd to pause and focus on children's Sabbath. In a week where the headlines swirl with impeachment inquiries and grave concerns over what's happening in Syria, it seems out of place to turn our gaze toward children. And two and a half months into our own leadership transition, when our head pastor vacancy leaves us anxious and unsettled, at least some of us more than others, one could certainly make the case to just skip this year's children's Sabbath observance. We have enough of our own things to worry about. But as Elijah Cummings, the great civil rights leader who died this past week has said, our children are our living messengers to a future we will never see. So I would like to suggest that there is an alternative an opportunity to redeploy our own sense of instability during uncertain times as a way to help us deepen our understanding of the uncertain realities that vulnerable children face. And without any claims of moral equivalency, I wonder if we can use our own sense of unsettledness as an interpretive lens to help us feel the uncertainty that under-resourced children face every single day. The children who bring so many other variables to their school day. The variables of homelessness and poverty and violence. I see my friend Link Spaulding. Among the many hats that he wears, 
One of them has been that of a tutor at School 3 and at the Young Mothers in Interim Health Academy and in a classroom at East High, and he says, thankfully, not all at the same time. And he shared that the most eye-opening times for him have been when students asked unexpected questions or told him unexpected things. There was a fifth grader who wanted to show him on the map where someone had been killed down the street from his home. There was the third grader who once blurted out a request for toothpaste and toothbrushes for her mom and her sister and herself. And there was the high school senior who asked Link how to tell time with an analog clock, blushingly explaining that she had missed school a lot and had missed learning that, and she was too embarrassed to ask. And in sharing his story, Link wrote, none of these things was something I expected to talk about, and none of them was on the list of topics the teacher had asked me to work on. Yet these things were important to my students. So we took the time to talk when they came up. I'm certainly not a trained counselor, so difficult topics would always get mentioned to the teacher later in case follow-up is needed. And thinking back, Link said, I realize that some of these unexpected topics with students were gifts to me gifts of an understanding into my students' lives, or gifts of opportunity allowing me to help a student. Jesus said, whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Then there's the story of Melanie Jones, who, in addition to coordinating the tutoring program at School 35, took on sixth grade math students who did not have a tutor. And besides math work, her students will bring up subjects of race and family and language and culture. They challenge her point of view. Melanie noticed that all of those in the group, including, including herself, were various expressions of women of color. And Melanie said that in their pre-adolescent, awkward ways, she could tell they were proud of her. She got a sense that their math group could be a way to encourage these young women and she saw how some youth really seek role models without telling you directly. Jesus said, whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And then there's Don Boyd's story of fifth grader Luis. Luis was a quick learner but had little experience outside of his family life. His mother was in jail and he and his two sisters lived with their grandmother who spoke only Spanish. Their home was in a rough neighborhood and for safety's sake Luis was often restricted to the house. 
Many times during the year, he asked if Don would take him out to lunch at a restaurant, but that wasn't allowed without approvals from the school and family. Well, in the spring of that tutoring year, Luis told Don he had never seen a movie, and he would like to see one. So Don worked to get approval from the school administrators, who in turn helped get approval from Luis's family. Don and his wife Mary identified an appropriate movie they thought he would enjoy. They chose a time and date and theater and restaurant. Luis enjoyed the movie. And later at the restaurant, he selected as much as he could from the menu, but he didn't eat much because he took the rest home to his family. In the following year, after Luis had moved on to sixth grade, every time he'd see Don in the hallway, he would get a high five. What a joy, Don said. Another tutor told of a similar experience, tutoring the same boy through all of fourth and fifth grades, and even when that tutoring relationship was over, whenever they passed in the hallway, he reached out to greet her by name and give her a hug. Imagine that, this tutor said, even in front of his friends. Jesus said, Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Kate Foster Connors has written that there are times when we need to be confronted head-on in order to grow. When we're stuck seeing things one way, when our world needs to expand so that we are able to see other things. Jesus could have told a story. Instead, he called a child among them. For when it's embodied, an idea is hard to ignore. Our denomination's 2010 resolution on equity and quality in public education recognizes that while some families can choose alternatives such as homeschooling, charter, and private schools, the vast majority of our children will, for the foreseeable future, continue to be educated in public schools. And the privilege to choose an alternative for one's own child and the privilege of exercising this right based on one's own resources does not absolve anyone from the obligation to support the public schools that educate the majority of our society's members. This work matters. Directly and indirectly, there is a way for each one of us to concretely support the education of our most vulnerable children. Whether it is through your vocation, working in around one of the schools, whether it is gathering up the courage to tutor that thing that you have been thinking about for a long time and haven't quite acted on, and yes, we always have a waiting list of students. Whether you can't do that in person, but you can provide school supplies, you can pray for them, you can advocate for them, including signing that letter that Ernest referred to that advocates for more and better early childhood education. 
And you can put that in the offering plate or give it to me. Friends, through our actions or inactions, let us not be stumbling blocks. Educate a child, transform the world, yes. But educate a child and be transformed. Educate a child in the name of the one who came as a child. And educate the vulnerable children, for they are the ones who indeed point the way to the kingdom of heaven. Amen.